Good morning. I'm Julie Coleman, and I'm a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel, and we are very thankful that you're here with us this morning. Now, if someone were to ask you, what is God's top priority for his church? How would you respond? Is it that we would lead morally pure lives? Or maybe that we would devote ourselves to social causes? Maybe we would loudly and shamelessly preach his gospel? I'm thinking, if we all sat down and brainstormed, we could come up with quite a list. I was thinking about that when I read John 17 this week. It's a written record of what Jesus prayed on the night of his arrest. Even though his agonizing death was just hours away, he was spending his last hours with his disciples at a Passover meal with them. And at one point in their evening together, he began to pray. And what did he pray for? His disciples. These were the men who would carry his gospel to the known world when he had departed. He was just 50 plus a few days from leaving the earth. What did he think they would need when he was gone? Well, we're going to take a look at that prayer because his priority, his earnest desire for them comes out loud and clear. His priorities haven't changed these 2,000 years later. The same things he desired for those at that table are the same things he desires for us today. Jesus, of course, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's read a portion of this prayer and see what those things are. I'm reading from John 17, verses 13 to 26. Jesus is praying to his Father. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of those alone, these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, and that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also be with me where I am, whom you have given me, so that they may see my glory for which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's ask God's help for this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is here to teach us and guide us and help us to understand spiritual truth. We just ask, Lord, that he would do that um, this morning as we uh, look through this passage and try to discover what it is Jesus was saying and how we can apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one key to recognizing what's important in a text at any time is to look for repeated words, phrases, or ideas. And I discovered while studying this, these few verses that there are four things that Jesus repeated in this passage. 
The first thing, this idea or, or even the exact words was, we are not of this that we, that are his disciples, are not of this world. And that's in verse 14 and 16. He also repeated that we are sanctified in truth. A third repeat is that he, we can be one or unified as Jesus and the Father are one. And the last is, so the world will know. So what I'd like to do this morning is take a brief look at each of those four points, those four things that are emphasized in the passage, and then pull them all together for good application and how we can apply these things to our lives. So the first thing he said is that we are not of his world. In verse 14, he said, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Then in verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That kind of repetition is pretty hard to miss. Well, what does Jesus mean by the world? Scripture uses the word to describe our temporary earthly home. Now, God created a perfect world, of course. He created and saw it was good. But with the first sin in the garden, the world became tainted, corrupt. Romans 8 tells us this. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. I hope that creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. You see, the world is corrupt. It's no longer the perfect place that God created. That's the world. That includes the people in it. The Bible also tells us that the world is currently ruled by Satan. First uh, John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2, it says that according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Under Satan's influence, the world has rejected God and his followers and its citizens are living in spiritual darkness. But for us as believers, Colossians tells us he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Those who believe in Jesus are no longer citizens of the world. They're citizens of the kingdom of God, and the world hates them for it. That was the first thing Jesus emphasized. The second thing he emphasized was our sanctification. He tells that we are sanctified by the truth of God's world. In verse 17, it says, he asked God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then in verse 19, he says, for they, their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. Now, to be sanctified is to be made holy or set apart. Sanctification is not something that we do to ourselves. It's a work of God. Jesus sanctified us by dying in our place. The disciples had heard the word of the Lord from Jesus himself and believed, and that set them apart from the world. In Ephesians 5, it tells us that Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Sanctification begins at salvation, but it's really a beginning of a lifelong process done through the word of God, which is the transforming agent God uses to mold us into the image of Christ. So we are uh, sanctified and we are not of the world. And the third thing that, Paul, that Jesus talks about is we can be one or unified as Jesus and the Father are one. In verse 21, it tells us that 
Jesus prayed that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, it says that they may be one just as we are one. And verse 23 says that they may be perfected in unity. Now that unity is to become one. It's just, it's just that same literal number one. But perfected in unity, perfection is to be made complete, to be made whole when we were together. Because God designed the church as a group of individuals varying in talents and abilities in strengths and in weaknesses. But Paul tells us in Galatians to bear one another's burdens. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it tells us this, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For even as the body is one and yet as many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So unity does not mean that everyone is a carbon copy of everyone else. God designed us as individuals in the church to function in many different ways. We're to work collectively as many members together, creating a fully functioning body. So we can be one in spite of our diversity. We're actually created to need each other. And finally, Jesus says this, through our unity that the world will believe that Jesus is God or from God. In verse 21, he prayed so that the world may believe that you sent me. In verse 23, he wrote so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And in verse 24, he says so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. It's interesting that unity is such a strong message to the world like that, because the world has plenty of unity, but it's very different in character. Think about the unified groups that you know about outside that are outside of Christianity. There's some very strong bonds out there. Think of the special interest groups, political groups, groups that form around a cause or a need. There's a bond, all right, but it only extends to those who are on the same side of a thing as they are. Jesus said of that kind of unity in Matthew, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. You see, godly unity is very different than the world's. Godly unity loves in spite of differences. It reaches out to those who don't agree with us, those who live different kinds of lives than us. It decides to love unconditionally, no matter if we get something out of the relationship or not. It's a kind of love that comes from people who have already been made whole in Christ. And John tells us, by, or Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And when we do have that kind of unity, it's like a phone light shining in a dark stadium. Like Paul said in Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear, you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. We were created to show God's glory to the world. God said in Isaiah, everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. 
We were created to demonstrate God's glory to the world. And how do we do that? Back to John. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We reflect the glory of God to the world by loving each other. Well, so what? How is this supposed to uh, affect my relationships within the church and uh, my actions as a believer to show the world Jesus? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see, unity requires getting self out of the way and choosing instead to live for Christ. Living for him is possible because we're living a new life. Living in the bondage of self-centeredness is a thing of the past. We can disregard all the feelings of self-entitlement and never-ending need for confirmation or acceptance, but it's not enough to preach to others about it. We need to live it. And I go to a a lot of writers' conferences, and every single writers' conference I attend, I hear these words, show, don't tell. Don't have your character explain themselves with a long dialogue. Instead, clue the reader in with their actions or their reactions. In the same way, the world does not want to be told about the love or glory of God. It wants to be shown. Unconditional love for others, which results in unity, cuts right through worldly logic and practices. Now, do you think you have the kind of mindset that would enable you to show unity within the body of Christ? I don't know about you, but for me, unity can be easier said than done. In thinking about my own set of unity issues, I thought of a couple of red flags from my own life that are good indicators of being unity challenged. Maybe you have some work to do in that area, too. So the first red flag I thought about was this. Is winning an argument or having the last word more important to me than the person with which I'm disagreeing. Now, if that is an issue for you, you're really failing to understand the reality of who you are because God loves that person. God gave his son to die for them and he did the same for us. It wasn't because uh, either of you were good people or somehow deserved it. You've both been given unconditional love and have been treated with kindness and grace. To put ourselves over other people is really to deny who we are and who they are in God's eyes. The reality is we're all on the same playing field. Like Paul said in Romans 2, Therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You see, every one of us was saved through the work of the cross. At the cross, we had to lay aside any sense of entitlement. Every one of us continues to be dependent on God's grace. None of us deserves to be exalted above the others because we are one in Christ. A second red flag I thought about was, am I easily angered when things don't go the way I think they should? Am I often tempted to take matters into my own hands? Do I want to fix things for God? It sounds ridiculous even saying that out loud, right? To think that way is not the way of faith. We need to learn to wait on him because when we do, we are acknowledging that he is at work in ways we may not understand. 
A few years ago, in the middle of a challenge to unity in the body, I made Psalm 62.1 one of my life verses. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. You see, impatience can really harden a heart. It stops us from looking for how God may be working or what the Lord may be trying to teach us. It assumes that God can make mistakes or fail us. We need to be teachable, open to his guidance and instruction. The heart of Christ accepts setbacks. It's ready to put expectations aside and choose to trust in God. And the final red flag, do people often not live up to my expectations for them? It's so easy to get all judgy when people do something they know better not to do. What are they thinking? How could they? But what we need to understand is that the tares grow right alongside the wheat. God is at work perfecting his bride, the church. He's not finished with me or that other guy, and he won't be until we die or the Lord returns. Philippians 1.6, it says that God is at work in us, completing the salvation which he began and will continue until uh, the day of the Lord. We can take comfort in that, that they won't be the same person even a year from now, and neither will you. Unity can happen with so many differences because of the things all believers share. We were saved by grace and the great love and mercy of God. None of us deserve salvation, but we were given it through the work of the cross. We all live for a God who are, whose ways are greater than ours. He's wiser, he can see the future, and he understands our hearts better than we know ourselves. He is worthy of our trust. And finally, we are all works in progress. God will be faithful to mold us into the image of Christ, and someday we will stand before him complete, and we will be like him. With those crucial factors in common, despite our differences, unity can be had. We just need to look at each other through the eyes of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that unity is possible even in light of our many differences and differences in opinions and abilities, and even our doctrine and theology. Help us, Lord, to view others how you see them, saved by grace, works in progress, progress, and future images of Jesus Christ. We want the world to see your glory through how we love each other. Amen.